Let me pray firstly that God will truly open our hearts. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you're a God of laughter, Father. You're a God who understands us even when we make silly mistakes. You never fail to love us. So we just come before you right now and stand before you and say thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you never leave us. And as we come to hear your Bible read, your word read and preached, Father, I just ask today that on behalf of us all that you will open our hearts by your Holy Spirit. If there be anything in there that is stopping us from truly believing and following after you, any little closets in, the, in our lives that are closed to you, Father, we ask that today you will open them up. Open up our minds, open up our hearts, and make us into the people that you want us to be. Oh, Father, I thank you for Paul. I thank you for the message that he is to bring us. I ask for you will truly bless him as he preaches your word and fill him with your Holy Spirit, giving us the words that you want him to say. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the Bible, Acts 2, from 1 to 14, is 41, is going to be read by Bruce, after which we invite Paul to come and share with us. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what the prophet Joel spoke. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now hear and see. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day.
Thanks so much, Bruce. And uh, it is really a delight for Sue and I to be with you uh, gathering as we uh, honour the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, by the spirit we, we know and come to understand. So Sue and I are always excited to come and spend time with you. And so thanks for, for having us. Um, over these uh, three weeks, we're going to be looking at the a person of the Holy Spirit, mainly about what the Holy Spirit does rather than who he is, um, but that's by virtue of the fact that we've just got a few weeks to do it. As we jump into it, though, can I say I'm just so aware that when we come to the person of the Holy Spirit, there's probably no other topic that could be more divisive among a Christian congregation in my experience. Uh, so any of you who've been around for a while you'll have that inward sense of this, uh, this potentially uh, being the case. Uh, over the years, what I've seen is uh, different issues arising in congregations about the nature of second blessing theology. You know, yes, you receive the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian, but should you expect some further, you know, uh, event or blessing of the Holy Spirit, main, you know, possibly accompanied by speaking in tongues? Is that a norm for Christian people? Uh, there are... Often in Christian circles, those who would regard themselves as being cessationists and those who are continuous, and those words may mean nothing to you, but if you think about your expectations about whether God should be doing the miraculous in our midst on a regular basis, some think that probably that ended in the first century, and some think we should expect it to happen today. I'm not going to take votes on these issues right now, but uh, I suspect there'll be a diversity of views even within our congregation. When it comes to our expectations about God, <coughs> excuse me, leading us uh, in day-to-day -day living, what should our expectations be? I have Christian friends, and it seems to me they have this sort of 3D living, active voice of God telling them what to do in lots of situations day by day. But I have other friends for whom the Christian life is more like um, a flat-pack furniture thing from Ikea. Uh, that is, what they, they get a flat pack furniture from Ikea, you've probably had one, you get instructions with it, and you have to meticulously follow the instructions in order to get a piece of furniture at the end of it. I can never do it, let me tell you. It's, it, my Ikea structures are always horrible. But for some people, it, it, Ikea is a bit more the model for the Christian life. God uh, gives us his Bible, we have the instructions, we follow those with uh, meticulous care. Uh, God himself has retreated to a distance and once we uh, die, we go and get together with God and we compare notes on how we went following, following the blueprint, you know. Is God constantly active in our lives or do we just, scriptures are sufficient as we go forward? And there are a stack of other issues when we come to the question of the Holy Spirit that probably I could get any two of you to have a, an interesting discussion about. So I'm just aware of that. What is interesting, though, is that when you turn to the scriptures, it is clear that the Holy Spirit is meant to unite people, not to divide them. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That is, the giving of the Holy Spirit is meant to bring unity among God's people. And when we come to talking about the Holy Spirit, it should be a topic that fills us with joy and excitement. Let me 
read to you from, uh, I, I think, one of the most unusual verses in the whole New Testament. It's in John chapter 16, verse 7. So Jesus is about to be crucified. He's been meeting with his uh, close followers and <coughs> explaining to them what's about to happen as he goes to the cross and the resurrection. This is what he says to them in John chapter 16, verse 7. Very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate of the Holy Spirit will not come to you. Now, do you hear what he's saying? Jesus is saying to his close friends, you're going to be better off without me. Now, can you imagine anyone ever thinking we're better off without Jesus? Really? And yet that's what he said. Is he just sort of, you know, is it sort of a fake humility? Oh, gosh, I'm nothing special. Well, obviously it's not that. But what he's saying is that unless he departs and sends the Holy Spirit, we miss out. It is brilliant that Jesus has been raised from the dead, ascended, and the Holy Spirit has been sent on God's people. So here's the question. Why has God sent the Holy Spirit? Why is it so wonderful? Why is it so good? Now, a key passage for understanding it is Acts chapter 2 that Bruce so helpfully read for us just a moment ago. And I'd love to pray as we dive into that, pray that God will unify us in our thinking about the work of the Spirit, that we'll be extraordinarily thankful that God has given us his Spirit and that he'll give us better understanding of what it means for us as God's people. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a, a giving God. Father, we thank you that uh, you sent your own son into this world to die on a cross, to be raised from the dead, to ascend uh, to your right hand. And Father, we thank you uh, that the Spirit has been sent on your people and on this world to bring about conviction uh, about truth, sin, salvation, repentance, forgiveness. Father, we do pray that as we uh, talk and think through some of these issues as we read your words over these weeks, you'll give us insight and understanding that we might be faithful in our following of you and delight in this wonderful gift of the spirit that you've given to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn to Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2. And of course, Acts is the second volume of a two-volume set of Luke and Acts in the New Testament. Now, in Acts chapter 2, we see the pouring out of the Spirit, but in this two-volume set, we've already seen God's Spirit at work powerfully and regularly in a, in a consistent sort of manner. Back in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 15, uh, we're told that John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, verses 41 and verse 57, we see Elizabeth and Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's parents, also uh, filled with the Spirit. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25, the Holy Spirit is upon Simeon. The Holy Spirit is regularly at work before uh, Pentecost occurs. When we go to Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 49, so immediately before you know, we jump into Acts of the Apostles, we're told this, Jesus is speaking, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city, that is, stay in Jerusalem, until you're clothed with power from on high. There's the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to Acts chapter 1, verse 4. 
And again, Jesus says, wait for the gift that my father promised. Wait for the gift my father promised. Verse 5, in a few days you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The pouring out of the Spirit, there are two promises attached here. The first is in verses 4 and 5 of Acts 1, the promise of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and then in verses 6 to 8, the promise that the apostles would receive power to witness as they go about world mission, you know, taking the gospel to the whole of creation. That's the promise. So what happened? Well, we heard about it, didn't we? The day of Pentecost, it's the biggest Jewish festival of the time. 50 days after Passover, uh, better weather. This was the time when the most pilgrims from the known world descended upon Jerusalem. It's like um, Adelaide in Mad March. You know, people from everywhere turn up. And if you were going to launch an advertising campaign, this is the time when you would do it because you've got the great crowd gathering. And that's exactly what happens. Acts chapter 2, verse 2, there's a sound like the blowing of a mighty wind. Verse 3, there are tongues of fire that come to rest on each one. And then in verse 4, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues just as the Spirit enables them. Now, this, this is a spectacular sort of scene and yet the signs that we're seeing here are not completely unusual if you know your Old Testament. Uh, for example, when it comes to wind and fire, they're often associated with the work of God. Uh, if we take wind, and we went to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, uh, wind is the sign of the presence of God with Elijah on Mount Horeb. Or in Job 38, verse 1, God speaks to Job out of the wind. Or fire. Uh, remember back in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, God speaks to Moses from a burning bush. Uh, fire is common. Back in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, John the Baptist promises that people would be baptised by the Spirit and fire. Uh, wind, fire, and even the tongues. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 11, uh, it's the Tower of Babel, and God divides the languages of people so that they can't rebel against him. It's almost the reverse of Acts chapter 2 and quite possibly linked together. If you go to Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 to 30, uh, there you read that the spirit is on Moses and the spirit that's on Moses is given to the 70 elders and they prophesy. So it's not speaking in tongues, although when you go to Acts chapter 2, did you notice the way in which Peter talks about the tongues being the spirit of prophecy on God's people. It's an interesting way in which he interprets it there. Quite special events. And then you see the impact in verses 11 and 12. Uh, well, back in verse 6, there's bewilderment because all the people heard these apostles speaking in their own language 
But it's what I'm saying at this point, where um, it, it's what the academics talk, talk about being xenoglossia rather than glossolalia. You don't need to remember the terms, but xenoglossia is when people speak in a language that is known. Glossolalia, more the sort of thing we, we appear to be seeing in 1 Corinthians, uh, in that church where a language that's unknown, some sort of spiritual language. So we're talking about uh, a known language. Uh, verse 7, we're told that the crowd are just totally amazed at how the apostles can be doing it. Verse 12, again, we're told they're amazed and perplexed. Verse 13, some even made fun of them. They said they've, they've had too much wine to drink. Interesting conclusion, isn't it? When I, before I was a Christian, when I was at university, I... Uh, would at times drink too much with my friends, right? I found that I, when I drank too much, I'd become very fluent in Mandarin. <laughs> I didn't actually. Like, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? They, they've had too much wine. That explains why I can speak in other languages. My guess at this point is that you're listening to these guys speaking in a variety of languages, but of course you don't know most of them, so you just speculate about why they're just gabbling on. I think that's What's going on? There's an ignorance that's happening there. Then in verse 41, now this would have been a day to be at, I reckon. 3,000 people repent and were baptised. Man, wouldn't you have liked to have been there for that? <laughs> what a day. That's what happens. So what does it mean? What does it mean? And in fact, that's the question that the crowd are asking. Look at verse 12 of Acts chapter 2. What does this mean? Now, what does it mean for then? What does it mean for now? Now, can I say that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Christians have been asking and coming up with different answers to this question for 2,000 years. What does this mean? Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And how should we understand it? Now, here is the brilliant thing, right? This is, this is the exciting thing. What we have here is a spirit-inspired sermon in Acts chapter 2 that makes it very clear what it means. Right? We don't have to guess what it means. We don't have to speculate. Peter, inspired by the spirit, tells us exactly what it means. All we need to do is try and have a look and what we're told here, this sermon on the topic to work it out. Okay, let's try and work our way through it, and uh, I'll just pick the eyes out of it as we go. So why are they speaking in different languages? What's going on here? Particularly in verses 17 to 21. Well, Peter explains they're not drunk. Okay, we sort of worked that out already. Uh, but here's the interesting thing. The fact that they're speaking in various languages is not as important as what it symbolises, okay? Not as important as what it symbolises. Often Christians can get distracted by the tongues, but the tongues, the languages, are pointing to something. That's what, what Peter says. And Peter says this is what the prophet Joel was talking about in the Old Testament. That's what he says, verse 16. It fulfills Joel's prophecy. How does it fulfill the prophecy? Well, Joel, he wrote about the coming judgment and salvation of God. Already in Joel's time, the people of God, Israel, were being judged for their rebellion. But Joel promised 
that God would send his spirit and reverse this judgment. He predicted the day of God's rescue of his people. And Peter says to the crowd, that's exactly what is happening today. It is being fulfilled right in your very presence. Peter says, this is actually the sign that we're in the last days. Verse uh, 17 of chapter 2. Notice he says, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Peter says, we're in the last days. Uh, He doesn't say we're about to enter the last days. He doesn't say the last days are going to start at some stage in the future when there's a significant trigger event. He says the last days begin with the pouring out of God's spirit. We have been in the last days now for 2,000 years. The day of Pentecost initiated that. Notice he also says the spirit will be on all flesh. Now, at this point, Peter's not saying that everyone's going to get converted. That's not the point he's making. But God is, at this point, fulfilling his plan to call people from every tribe, nation and tongue into his eternal family. And then the third thing to pick up here is that what we're seeing here at Pentecost, less about tongues and more about the spirit of prophecy being poured out. The emphasis, you see there in verse 17, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Verse 18, they will prophesy. The prophets in the, the Old Testament, they had the task of declaring God's word to the people of God. And now the spirit of prophecy is on all God's people to declare the word of God, not just on some select prophets. And then, what is this word of prophecy saying? Where's the focus? I want you to really pay close attention at this point because the prophecy, uh, the sermon from Peter, tells us that the focus here is not on the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Like the day of Pentecost, you think Holy Spirit poured out. But actually, that's not what Peter says here. The focus is not on the Holy Spirit. The focus is on Jesus. Let me show you. Like this is the bulk of what Peter says. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 22, he was accredited by miracles and signs and wonders. Verse 23, he was handed over to you and you killed him, but this was God's plan. Verse 24, you killed him, but death could not hold him. Verse 27 through to verse 31, quotes Psalm 16 and says, Jesus has not been abandoned to the grave. Verse 32, and we apostles were eyewitnesses of the way God raised Jesus back to life. Verse 33, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. Verse 36, Jesus is Lord and Christ. He's the Messiah. Verse 38, repent and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, so you know that Jesus is Lord and Christ. This word from God, spirit inspired, is all about Jesus. The age of salvation that we're in through Jesus, this age that is now ours. 
and 3,000 people believe in Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the biggest spiritual event that we could identify in the whole of the New Testament almost forgets to talk about the Holy Spirit? And all the time is spent talking about Jesus. Now, you might think, ah, is this just sort of a sort of an evangelical pastor's sleight of hand? You know, sort of Holy Spirit, no Jesus, you know, sort of have I just done it that way? I, I think this takes us to a really important point about the way God works by his spirit in our lives and in our world. Now, uh, what I want to do here is pause and just get you to think about this for a moment. How many people were fans of the television show The West Wing? Okay, West Wing fans? Not many at all. This is really disappointing, let me tell you. I, uh, I was speaking to Steve during the week and he said he'd never even watched a program. That defied my imagination. That's okay. It doesn't matter whether you've seen it or not. Let me uh, explain. It would have been better if you had, but that's okay. Uh, the West Wing was a political uh, show uh, taking us into the sort of White House in America. Lots, lots of programs have. You can see the screenshot uh, behind me. These were the characters, and maybe you recognise some of them from the program. It was one of the first times, I think, that Australians got this, this window into American politics. So we, Jed Bartlett, he was the president, played by Martin Sheen. All right, then... Next to the president, the most powerful person in the White House was the highest political appointee in uh, the White House. It's the Secretary of State. Uh, sorry, the Chief of Staff, the President's Chief of Staff. That was played by John Spencer in the series, who uh, played a man called Leo McGarry. And what you had was this, the president who was the upfront statesman, but the chief of staff did all the work in the background, making things happen, sort of silently behind the scenes, but with enormous power. And the whole thing just worked because there was a partnership happening in this context, okay? Now, if I, before we put the next shot on the screen, if I asked you who the president of the United States is today, you would be able to tell me it is Joe Biden. Well done, okay. We all know it's Joe Biden. And then if I... Um, asked you who the chief of staff without, you know, who's the chief of staff for the American president today? You would tell me it is, it is, it is, who knows, who cares, I guess. But uh, do you know what I mean? That, that is, he's a significant player on the world scene, but most of us don't know that Jeff Zients is the chief of staff uh, for the American president, even though he's an extraordinarily powerful man. Can I say, when it comes to uh, the Trinity and particularly the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is like the chief of staff. doesn't get much attention, but has a critical role in serving the president so the president is uh, able to achieve his job and press forward with the agenda. In our... Um, egalitarian, authentic, everyone should get equal airtime sort of world. We think, no, no, the Spirit should get more attention. But actually, when you read the New Testament, that's not the case. The Spirit is sent to actually help us understand the salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ 
and to help us understand that more richly and fully and powerfully. That's the point that Pentecost is making when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit. And we need to keep hearing that. So what I'd love to do for just a moment or two is to talk about what it means for us today as we think through some of these issues. Firstly, let me talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit. And we'll come back to this topic a few times over the next couple of weeks. A couple of things to say about baptism in the Holy Spirit. It is a phrase that is only used seven times in the whole of the New Testament, four times in the Gospel, um, the Gospels to do with John the Baptist, twice in Acts, once in Acts chapter 1 verse 5, we've already looked at that, and then once in Acts chapter 11 verse 16 when Peter is talking about Cornelius. There's a further mention in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, verse 13. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is linked to the way in which the Spirit demonstrates that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. That's the point here in Acts chapter 2. You can see that in Acts 2, verse 36. Third thing to say is baptism in the Spirit is all about being converted, right? Becoming a Christian. Uh, if I could take you to Acts chapter 11, I think the verses will appear on the screen behind me. Uh, here in Acts chapter 11, Peter is in Jerusalem and he's talking about how Cornelius, a Gentile, became a Christian. So he's talking about how the gospel has gone from the Jews to the Gentiles and the way in which the Spirit has a role in that. This is how Peter refers to that in verses 15 to 17, Acts chapter 11. Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he came on us at the beginning, referring back to Acts chapter 2. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptised with water, but you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Uh, just like in John chapter 3, born again by the water and the Spirit, the way you become a Christian is to be born again by the Spirit of God, that is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the standard way in which people believe and it's the standard way in which the Spirit operates. Second thing to comment on is the age of the Spirit being poured out, that's the age in which we're in, means we're living in the age of salvation. Acts chapter 2 again, verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. In verse 40, Peter says, Save yourselves, and 3,000 people repent. Friends, this, this is the age that we live in. Uh, we live in the age where the gospel is for all people everywhere. It's for people right across our globe. That's why we have the CMS dinner. Cast our eyes further afield to see what God is doing among the nations. It's why in the Trinity Network we plant churches. It's why you're thinking how you might plant a church down at Gula. I mean, why would you bother planting at Gula? Why not just keep growing a congregation here and uh, this is comfortable and we can keep, you know... Well, 
Well, because you want people to hear the gospel right throughout the South Coast, don't you? And you know local churches are the way in which people uh, hear and respond to the gospel. It's why you want your family and friends to hear the gospel. We live in an age where God turns hearts and minds and convicts people. And I take it for most of you here today, you know that experience. It was over 40 years ago when I was a university student that I was convicted of my sin and I repented and became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when the Spirit came upon me and changed my orientation in life. And I've never recovered from it <laughs> in more than 40 years. That's, that's the reality. But, you know, I'm hearing constantly about the way in which God is doing it. I was at a uh, birthday party, a 60th birthday party. Just I seem to be getting a lot of invitations to 60th type birthdays right now. It must be the age I'm at. Uh, but uh, I was at this birthday party. I talking to a man. He was 63 years old. And there's no more slides, apparently. <laughs> He's, he was um, 63 years old, but he told me that this year he had become a Christian. Okay? And I said, how, how did that happen? He said, well, you know, I'd gone through my life, 63 years, and never given God a second thought, to be quite honest. And then at the start of this year, I thought, there's something missing in my life. I wonder if it's God. Um, so I went to a bookshop and bought a Bible and started reading it. And, uh, and then I thought, maybe I should go to a church as well. So I just Googled churches in my local area, went along to one, and uh, someone sat down with me and started reading the Bible with me, and I got convicted of my sin. Is the screen coming back? That's what, there must be more slides. And uh, so he, he just said that he'd been reading the Bible with somebody else and repented and became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, it's so exciting. My whole life, I hadn't realised what was missing. And he said, that's my wife just over there. Um, this is the first time I think she's even met any Christians, but it seems to be going okay. You know, and... Uh, it's just really, really nice. I was at Allgate about three weeks ago, another church in our network. They had three men uh, baptised on the Saturday night. One in his 20s, sort of a, a young graduate, two men in their 40s. I'd talked to one of these guys without realising it the previous night, and he said, oh, yeah, I became a Christian about uh, six months ago, and I'm getting baptised tomorrow night. I said, yeah, tell me the story. And he said, well, uh, I was going along, not giving God a second thought, thinking life is all about my family, my marriage, my kids, and uh, then I discovered my wife was having an affair, and she left me and went with the other bloke, and quite honestly, I just crashed, and I was... Um, Detained under a mental health order, and I didn't know where to go. Uh, but I knew there was um, someone in, up here in the hills who went to church, and uh, they knew my friends. They knew my kids, sorry. So I, I rang up uh, from when I was being detained, explained the situation, and spoke to the wife. The wife spoke to her husband, Richard, and Richard immediately got in the car, drove down to where the guy was staying and said, what you need to know is that you need to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can get your life together 
gave him a book, and he said that was a real turning point. And I started reading the Bible, and over the next few months, I've become a follower of the Lord Jesus. And I said, my life has just so changed. From ashes, God has built something quite extraordinary, and I'm so excited about life. I'm hearing those stories constantly. Uh, I think it was on Monday, there was a funeral that many of you were at uh, here at Victor Harbour of a man who recently got converted and then has gone to be with the Lord. You know, he got life and life. <laughs> Isn't it a wonderful, wonderful gift of God, the way in which he draws people to himself? That's the age. That's the age we live in. What does a spirit-filled church look like? It's interesting, we didn't get a read, but at the end of Acts chapter 2, you get this sort of cameo, summary almost, of what a church looks like. It's a wonderful picture. I won't, I won't read it, but what we're told is that the apostles uh, provide spirit-filled teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a rich fellowship among God's people. There's awe, there's wonders and signs. There's an extraordinary generosity among God's people. They don't seem to be concerned much about home ownership. <laughs> They're selling homes and giving the proceeds away. They're praising God. And in verse 47, what we're told is, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. The apostles, back in Acts chapter 1, they were told that they would be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 8, we're told that uh, Peter and John are both before the Sanhedrin and they're filled with the Spirit and they testify to Jesus boldly. In Acts chapter 5, same thing happens. They're arrested, uh, testify boldly to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they're, they're beaten and imprisoned. But friends, I want to say that it's not just the apostles. Friends, we're empowered to proclaim the Lord Jesus too. Next 4, verses 29 to 31. Peter and John, they've been arrested, appear before the Sanhedrin, they're released, they gather with the people of God. And as they gather together, they pray that God might, in his kindness, help them to speak about Jesus with boldness. And we're told that they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, including Peter and John. They've already been filled with the Spirit a couple of times at this point. That is, there's an ongoing filling with the Spirit. Bold. All of God's people are given boldness by the Spirit. There's a man called Jim Dowse. He's um, gone to be with the Lord now, but he worked with CMS for a while in a few overseas contexts in Asia and the Middle East. I remember him telling me one day in uh, one of the Asian countries he was in, he went to the local swimming 50-metre uh, yeah, pool just to uh, uh, cool off. And while he was there, one of the locals got into trouble in the water and started drowning. He said, given the country he was in, no one seemed to be doing anything. <laughs> so he jumped in and uh, rescued this guy 
and uh, you know, gave him resuscitation and he, he, and he recovered. And afterwards, this, this young man came over to Jim and thanked him for saving him. And Jim said to him, let me tell you what today was all about. God sent me here so that your life might be spared so that you could put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think I would have ever thought to do that in that situation. But of course he was completely right, wasn't he? And he, he, he just spoke with boldness about the gospel and in a way that was not, not limited. We live in a a culture right now where the headwinds against being open about your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're quite strong, aren't they? Christians are not flavour of the month. The gospel about putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved, the only way to have life for eternity. That's, that's not all that popular in our culture. And if you're like me and you're in those conversations, you will get pushback on that sort, of, that sort of topic, that sort of conviction. And it's really tempting, isn't it, just to go quiet, just to you know, keep working on being friendly and warm. It's good to be friendly. I'm not against that. But it's easy to stop there. The people of God gathered. They prayed that God would help them speak with boldness about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happened. They spoke the word of God boldly. Friends, do you think if we prayed that prayer together that God by his spirit would give us boldness in speaking his word? Do you think God might answer that one? I think he will. So why don't I pray it right now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you're a God who is gracious and merciful. And we thank you that uh, you've been the architect of uh, salvation throughout the millennia. Thank you that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. He died, gave his life, rose again, is ascended to your right hand, reigning in all glory. He is Lord in Christ. Thank you that the Spirit has been sent so that we can be convinced about the nature of relationship with you, uh, the forgiveness of sins, and the hope that we have for eternity because the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning in all glory. And Father, this morning we pray that you and your kindness, you will fill us with your spirit so that we might speak boldly and openly without fetter, uh, with the courage that you provide so that others might hear how wonderful it is to have a relationship with you, to be forgiven and to have the hope of glory. Father, we pray that you will fill us by your spirit so that we can declare your wonderful deeds to those around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.